Greetings and welcome to the Matt Asher Radio Show coming at you from Mora Bay Studios where the waters are shallow and the conversations are deep. Each week on the show we explore the unknown knowns, the fringes of science and culture, the borderlands between truth and possibility. If you happen to be in South Florida, you might be listening to this show live at 6 p.m. on Saturdays on Keys Talk 96.9 or 102.5 FM. If so, please note that every episode is uploaded afterwards to mattasher.com and available on our podcast feed, including the one where I talk about two-headed dogs and floating monkey brains. Do a search for the filter on your favorite podcast app. This episode will be different from the others. This is my conversation with Vaughn Scribner, a historian who wrote a book about merpeople, mermaids and tritons, and this conversation we had live at the Key West Theater on August 19th. In addition to the conversation, we had live music from Miles Mancuso. You will hear his guitar throughout this episode. I've interspersed it with our conversation, so you get a little bit of the flavor of the live show. And of course, you'll hear the audience from time to time, including right now, we're going to begin with some of the guitar of Miles, and then we'll go right into the live conversation I had with Vaughn Scribner. I will be talking with Vaughn Scribner. He has come in from Arkansas, where he is a professor at the University of Central Arkansas, a professor of history. And we are going to be talking about his book, Mer People, A Human History. This is the, the main event. So why don't we just bring him on out? Hands together, please, for Mr. Vaughn Scribner. We're going to begin with what is a merperson? Um, well, classically, it's half human, half fish. Um, there's always the funny, like, I don't know if I'm sure you're all familiar with Family Guy. There's this episode, my students made me aware of it. Um, there's an episode where they meet a merman, but he's fish on the top and human on the bottom, and it's this whole <laughs> issue. Um, but traditionally, it's human top, uh, fish bottom. Um, as you'll see up here, most of them are, are mermaids. Um, originally, you had a lot more mermen, but for the past I know 700 years it's been mostly mermaids so yeah it's a usually a mermaid or a merman is a human on top fish on the bottom and they have various um, characteristics attached to them mermaids can either be these seductive sirens who will drag men to the depths of the ocean to their death um, or they can be more friendly creatures who incite wonder and awe in human beings they've become key figures from everything you know, going from religion to capitalism to uh, science, you name it. So, yeah, I, I really argue in my book and my research that mer people tell us as much about us as they do about them. We've projected these ideas onto them because I think humans were very, um, we, we like us, I guess is what I'd say. And so, and a lot so to that. A human history. Yes, exactly. Not a, a history from the perspective of mermaids themselves. No, I wish. I, I can't get in their heads very well. Yeah, it's tough. <laughs> 
we uh, throughout your your book, you talk about the history of mermaid sightings and mermaids in mythology. That mm -hmm. history goes back a long way. Yes. When when are the first documented sightings or artifacts related to I mermaids? Mean, the artifacts go back to the ancient Assyrians, um, Babylonians, but I find that the way we think about mermaids is often rooted in the early, it is rooted in the early Christian church's depiction of mermaids, going back to like the 11th, 10th century. And an interesting twist, the Christian church kind of creates our ideas of what a mermaid and a merman looks like. And we're still not sure why they chose to represent them the way they did. Um, because before this, it was almost all mermen. You have these oceanic gods like Ones. Um, but they definitely did it to demonstrate the dangers of femininity and lust and sex. So an early modern churchgoer, they would have walked in these cathedrals. And, you know, there are some interesting things in cathedrals, everything from gargoyles to all kinds of things. But to see a, a nude woman um, with prominently displayed nude breasts in a church was very shocking at the time. And they, it was meant to be. It was meant to basically scare men, who were the main, you know, male priests, off of women, basically. But in an interesting twist there, they created this image of mermaids, which people have picked up on since then and, and used in all of these ways. I take my I take my students on study abroad trips to the UK often, and whenever I'm there, we, we go to, of course, a lot of cathedrals. And I say, I give them these little, like, kind of challenges. Find the mermaid in here. Find more than one mermaid. And they always do. They're all, they're all over the place. I'll never forget, I was in York, and I was up. To get to the roof of the cathedral, you have to go on this walkway on the outside. And there's this random spire up there with, like, three mermaids. And the only way you'd ever see that is if you were up there. But they obviously knew people would be walking that direction to get to the roof so you could look out over the city. So they, they placed them there. Um, so yeah, the sightings go way back, but you have this real boom around the 12th century when you have churches representing merpeople, both in their halls and in these bestiaries and these, these tomes they're pr producing. So as people see them around themselves, I would argue they start to expect to see them in other places. And I think those two kind of go together. So you talked about how the church was using mer people mermaids mm -hmm. as a warning of sorts yes the this is dangerous there's a mm -hmm. a history of that that goes back to the sirens yes um in in the odyssey and women who will lure you down to the depths and to your to your death mm -hmm. the the theme there too being that women are dangerous but yes. i do have to ask aren't they well <laughs> no that's what i'm gonna say they can be um <laughs> Yeah, no, I've, um, and that's interesting too, and this is something I've talked about, is this idea that like these mermaids are supposed to be these, they're supposed to present sex to men basically, but they don't have reproductive organs. Uh, so there's this weird thing there. However, there are the classical, so that's a mermonk. Um, they're more rare. You see how he's all clothed and covered? There aren't as many of them, but they're supposed to kind of present this chaste opposition to the mermaid. But... Um, the, the Starbucks mermaid, who you saw depicted right off the bat, she's spreading her tails apart. And it's no coincidence that over time, Starbucks, for their logo, has zoomed in more on the mermaid because that's considered, like, too dirty, basically. Um, they took that image directly out of a, fifth, a 15th century representation of a mermaid. Um, but there are certain the, these 
representations of mermaids uh, spreading their tails apart. And this is, we'll get to this eventually, but everywhere from the Middle East to Africa uh, to, to, the, to Europe. And I've even found more graphic depictions of a mermaid spreading her tails like that. Some of them have reproductive organs, and even some of them have a fish, a Christian fish, penetrating her. So stuff gets kind of graphic really quick there if you look in the right places. So there you go. Yeah. So you, we'll get back maybe to the idea of uh, women and men, too, as dangerous. Yeah. But uh, just what you touched on there was that there are a variety of different cultures. Yes. Talk a little bit about the wide range of cultures in which mermaid iconography appears. This is what absolutely, one of the things about this project that really fascinated me and still fascinates me is everywhere I look, I find them. And I was talking to some people before this is that, you know, something I say oftentimes, and my wife's heard this a lot, is like mermaids are everywhere. And um, Key West is like mermaids central. I, I've never been anywhere that has, yeah, so many mermaids here. Um, but whether, you know, I found instances of mer people represented in ancient rock art in the Karoo Desert in South Africa. Um, the Benin people in, in Africa are representing these spread-tailed mer people, and they look almost just like these mer people represented um, in the Middle East. Um, they're in Japan, they're in China, they're in South America. Basically, anywhere you go, anywhere and anywhere when you go, you're going to find mer people. The Russians have these rusalki, as they call them, these women who will come up, and they only target men. Um, they don't target other women and they, they drag men into the depths. And so I think there's something here in this idea of our connection with the ocean, um, our reverence of the ocean, but also our kind of fear of it too. I know I'm scared. I grew up in the middle of Kansas. So I'm just trying to break down my fear of the ocean, um, trying to swim out a little farther, you know. But we're, you know, as humans, we're pretty useless in the ocean on our own unless we have fins and scuba stuff. Um, and I, th I think there's something to that too, but I'm still trying to pin down in my research just what it is that makes mermaids and mermen to an extent such a ubiquitous cultural feature of humanity. So one of the possibilities as you look back at history and you see that the mer people were represented in a variety of mm -hmm. different cultures over time is that there was more interconnection between ancient folks than we believe. Yes. Totally. Uh, and then the other explanations are maybe a little bit more out there in yeah. terms of, 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 well, I suppose one would be that human beings just naturally think about the sea and mm -hmm. create mystical creatures, and this is a, a logical one yeah. to create, uh, or that there's some kind of unconscious plane. Do you want to weigh in on which of those explanations or which combination yeah. you think is most likely? Well, I mean, one of my favorite examples of this is this French phil philosopher, um, De Malier. Um, he wrote this book that was his name reversed called Ateliumed. And um, in it, I think this came out in 1715, in it he argued that humans came from the ocean, which was really ahead of his time quite frankly, and he got a lot of flack for this because people were like, oh, you know, what about Adam and Eve, blah, blah, blah. Um, but he argued that like, basically if humans come from the ocean, why shouldn't there be half-human, half-fish hybrids if we've kind of evolved, if you will? Um, and, I, I, you know, I think there could be something 
to this maybe. My big thing always is that like I don't necessarily believe in merpeople, but if we discovered them, I don't think I'd necessarily be surprised either. But I think a lot of it is us trying to find meaning in the world, this kind of quite classic example, like why are we here, who are we? And I think merpeople provide this more, they provide a logical in some ways answer to this, that like, well, we came from the ocean and we've kind of evolved over time. And you've had a lot of people thinking about this for a long time. And the, one of the craziest things about my research for me is just how many sightings I've found and, and writings about merpeople from really, really smart people. These aren't just a bunch of quacks going out and saying they've seen these merpeople. They're the smartest men and women in the world at the time. Um, it would be like if you know Elon Musk and Bill Gates came out right now and like, yeah, I've seen this, or yeah, I believe in merpeople, we need to go chase them down. And I always argue that we're still looking for merpeople today, we just don't call them that. But in the 14th through 18th centuries, mid-19th, it was a way for people to kind of push our boundaries of knowledge, if you will, and we're still doing that today. I mean, I was joking with Matt before this, you know, you've got people like Elon Musk now, like flying, you know, just because they can, flying into space, but we also have these ideas of like multiple dimensions that scientists are coming out with. Um, we're discovering new things about, you know, we're pushing the human clock back all the time. And so I, I think that this idea of discovery of the self, but also humanity's place in the world, really comes back to merpeople. One of the most interesting things about the book and to think about generally, and this also ties into the theme of my show as well, is, uh, which is the, the limits of between possibilities mm -hmm. and realities, yes. the fringes of culture and mm -hmm. science, is that there was a, a long period of time when the idea of the mer creature was neither science nor fiction, neither myth nor reality. It existed somewhere in between, and it, one couldn't just wade in and say, this is nonsense, this couldn't possibly be, because there were all these sightings, there yes. were all these other things, and there was no particular reason to believe that they couldn't exist throughout the world, especially in the explorations mm -hmm. of centuries gone by. People were discovering all kinds of new and interesting creatures, and the idea that there might be a creature that was half human, roughly, yeah. and half fish, that was no more far-fetched than many of the things that were being discovered. Totally. And you know, I, I mean, think about it. If you come across and you find a platypus, or before that, a possum, in the new world, like, what the hell is this? It's, it has a pouch and there's a baby in it. Like, what is going on here? If you have all these sightings anyway, I mean, it would almost be, if you were a thinker, you know, someone who fancied themselves a thinker or a, um, you know, more liberal philosopher, you'd almost be doing yourself a disservice saying they didn't exist because you're, you're pushing down this, these possibilities of the natural world and humanity's place in it. And I think that's why you have people like Carl Linnaeus, the father of modern classification, Ben Franklin, uh, Cotton Mather, um, am I forgetting, Alexander G Garden, who was this big botanist in America, not just chasing them down, but also saying they'd found them and drawing them and studying them. Um, Carl Linnaeus signed off on one of his students' dissertations that found this siren Lacertina in South Carolina that's still depicted as such today, where he said that this is like the modern mermaid. Um, so, you know, going back to what I was talking about earlier, it's like it's still getting to this idea of 
to push forward with our scientific knowledge. And science, of course, is subjective. We're always learning more. We don't really know anything like we think we do. Um, you have to kind of embrace the wondrous and accept maybe we don't know. And that's what they were doing. So all of this comes to a head sometime in the 1800s mm -hmm. when the number of sightings shoots up, but also at the same time you have a number of not so real mermaids. I think one of the ones that appeared there was the Fiji yes. mermaid. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. What was the Fiji mermaid? Fascinating. So when in the late 18th, early 19th century, Japan finally opened up to foreign uh, trade and capitalism and industry. And as these Westerners are going to Japan, they come armed with this the, the cocktail of ideas about what they should find in these far off oceans. And they think that mermaids are going to be there. So as they start trading with Japanese people, they're selling them these little twisted, ugly, you know, we know now they're, they're half salmon, half monkey little creatures. And we still don't know, it's kind of the chicken and the egg thing. Do we, were they already making these? And they started selling them to Westerners? Or were Westerners like, hey, where are the mermaids? And they're like, oh yeah, here they are. And they made them. Um, but this guy named Captain Samuel Edis, who was a, a Londoner captain, um, as I said, I, know, I said that twice, but he came over and he was on a ship that wasn't his. He sells the ship for this mermaid, this little Fiji mermaid. And an entire ship. An entire ship one that wasn't his for mermaid. a tiny little shriveled up creature. They have one at the British Museum in London. I, if you guys are, it's, it's, they're not impressive, but it, it played into their beliefs because if you think they're real, then why not? Why shouldn't they look like this little weird creature that's maybe ugly? That it almost look, it makes it more legitimate in that way. That it doesn't look like her, you know? And so he buys it and he takes it back to London and he's going to exhibit it at a coffee house. And it gets actually held as contraband for a while because he tried to like import it illegally. But eventually he starts showing it. And he brings some local scientists in to like examine it, to, to legitimize it. However, he makes them sign this basically non-disclosure non -disclosure agreement like, well, yeah, but if it's not real, you can't say anything. Well, they come out and they're like, this thing's not real, but they can't say anything. Eventually he gets shut down. At the end of the run for his Fiji mermaid is that it tours with this pig called Toby the pig and it's like second fiddle to this wondrous pig that's walking around England. Then though P.T. Barnum, an American huckster and showman, ends up buying the same Fiji mermaid and he tours through America with it and people are all about it. He advertises it as this beautiful like more classical mermaid like that. People are like, oh man, we're finally going to see it. But then when they go see it, it's this shriveled up little creature in this like glass dome. And they're like, what the hell is this? This is ugly. This isn't real. And these scientists at this point have come out and be like, this is fake. They show how it was created, how it was made. So P.T. Barnum basically peaks, and this is in the early 1840s, he peaks and destroys belief in mermaids within just a few years. One um, of the, I think the decision to go with a mermaid as the one that is the real mermaid, so to speak, and to go with something that is shriveled and kind of horrific yes. was actually kind of genius. Super. Because yeah. it it brought you into the idea that, oh, this is real, and the real world is not the fantasy world. Exactly. So by positioning it not as this idyllic fantasy of the gorgeous woman lounging mm -hmm. on the rock with her 
uh, um, uh, her beautiful tail, but mm -hmm. as a what looks kind of like a real creature totally. that has been plucked out of the ocean and mummified almost. Yes. It's, roughly it's taxidermied. A, right. Yes. Rough, it's a bit of brilliance, isn't it? This is the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk FM, and you are listening to the sounds of Miles Mancuso. This is a different kind of episode. It was recorded live at the Key West Theater. We'll hear a little bit more of Miles, and then we'll be back to my conversation with Vaughn Scribner about his book, Mer People. Displaying mermaids' hands and um, what else? Mermaids' hands. I'm sure forgetting one. But they've been displaying pieces of mermaids. The Royal Society of London had them listed among their stuff in the 18th and 17th centuries. So this was just taking it to the next level and saying, like, well, here you go. I mean, we've seen what a taxidermied mermaid, you know, taxidermied mummified, like, I don't know, dog looks like. Here's a mermaid. So it just fit in nicely. And all of this is happening in the context of the Darwinian revolution, so totally. to speak, mm -hmm. where one of the ideas floating out there, well, the Darwinian idea is that you have the evolution of the species and that we come from other animals. Exactly. And so if we come from other animals, well, maybe there's some bridge totally. animal in between us. Yeah, there were these ideas of the ape man at the time going around. And so it really made perfect sense. Now, people also attacked Darwin using the mermaid, being like, well, Darwin, if your stuff, you know, people who didn't believe in mermaids, like, if your stuff, if your ideas of evolution exist, then mermaids must be real. So they were trying to attack him with that as well. You have all kinds of satire coming in with the ideas of mermaids. Um, in the lead up to the American Civil War, people would compare the North and the South to a mermaid, incongruous halves, you know, slammed together and so it's really permeating which, society. which half would be the uh in that analogy which half would be the top i'm gonna go north south north yeah. is the okay yeah i don't know that's a good question <laughs> yeah so so you have the this this history and this kind of comes to a head in the right around the time of the civil war you mm -hmm. have a a secondary scientific revolution with darwin and you have pt barnum parading around this mer creature yes and people start to realize this is not really a a mer creature and the idea the scientific basis for mer people kind of dissolves around yes. then yeah and it's interesting there too because right after that you have this idea basically that okay mermaids don't exist however that didn't mean people weren't interested in mermaids anymore in fact, it spikes after that. So in the second half of the 19th century, you have these live mermaid shows. 
Now, at this point, they're not saying they're real mermaids. They're just trying to present them as like these fun little events you can go to and see someone dress up as a mermaid. Now, this goes south sometimes where, for instance, in Rome, a guy had a woman dress up as a mermaid and he locked her in this tank, basically. And she was trying to like cry for help, but whenever she tried to cry for help, he'd just push her back in the water. He eventually gets put in jail. Um, but you have in Brighton, in London, um, they have a mermaid show, but they're explicit about, it's not a real mermaid, it's about seeing women dressed as mermaids swimming around. Um, and then eventually this is gonna you know, integrate itself with art, where you have people depicting mermaids in this more romantic vision. But this idea of, now, don't get me wrong, just as now, then was the same, people were still saying they're, they're seeing mermaids, but it doesn't have this kind of like academic, scientific root anymore. Barnum screwed up for Though us all. there are still people who believe. Oh, totally. Yeah, and this is something, I mean, I've had some interesting emails since I wrote this book. Um, I had someone email me that they had like Google Earth images where if you zoomed it back enough, like reefs look like mermaids and things. Um, but beyond just like stuff like that, you have it, a lot of cultural, um, you know, cultural kind of foundations in these ideas of, of mer people still. Uh, everywhere from, like I said, Haiti um, to various island communities, that there's still a, a deep belief in mer people. One of my good friends, uh, his wife is from the United Arab Emirates, and they still have a lot of beliefs about mer people in, in these oases and things. So mer people are still thriving, and not just the kind of this like mer mermaid movement that we see going around places like Key West, but even in the kind of these deep cultural, even religious ideas. So let's go back for a moment to that idea of uh, mermaids in religion. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that they were useful kind of as a, a warning yes. for people. Uh, do, you know, do not go there. Mm -hmm. There are throughout both religion and in mythology, there are certain things that people set up as the, well, as the forbidden fruit, yes. so to speak. Uh, mermaids take over as the particular view of the forbidden fruit, mm -hmm. you argue, for the Christian uh, church. Why, why do you think that was specifically for mermaids as opposed to something else? You know, or, you know, the Bible itself has literal forbidden they fruit do, in yes. it, right? Why not, why not portray the apple, right, or, or whatever that fruit would be? Why mer, mer creatures specifically? That's a great question. Well, I think a lot of these communities that happens in, whether from... France to Italy to England to Scotland to Ireland, they're very seagoing mm -hmm. cultures. So I think there's something there where you have a lot of people who spend their time at sea a lot. So to, to depict a, a creature of the ocean mm -hmm. would have really worked there. But I think, you know, it also goes in this deeper kind of, it wasn't just the mermaid, it was this effort to kind of decenter the feminine, I would argue, where, you know, but the Christian church is trying to bring males and masculinity back into kind of the center of Christianity. Jesus, um, originally Jesus was depicted as androgynous because when the Christian church is coming about, they're trying to convince people who had multiple gods and goddesses to have this new religion where there's just one. And so Jesus kind of stepped in as this. He, he was oftentimes depicted with like hips and you couldn't really tell if he was male or female. But over time, they start to bring in this masculine idea. So the, the, the mermaid comes to represent this, this other side of the coin, basically. It's this dangerous, feminine, 
negative entity. Um, and you know, if you even, I'm not going to go there, but you, it's, um, go ahead though. Well, I was going to say it's, you know, this idea of, okay, like it's kind of a, it's kind of a leap, but you know, you have this idea of taking Mary Magdalene kind of out of the picture in some ways, but even eventually Queen Mary of Scots, um, she has this affair and she, there's this broadside drawn up about her in the 17th century and she's depicted as a mermaid. And so mermaids, and uh, prostitutes oftentimes, another name for them is mermaid. So you have this deep roots of mermaids representing this seedy underside almost, if you will, and that goes directly back to the Christian church because they're these overtly feminine, I wish I had, but oftentimes presented with like prominent bare breasts, flowing hair, they have their mirror in their comb, these images of vanity and self-reflection, um, oftentimes painted when they're in these books with like go gold paint, okay, so they really leap off the page, and that was intentional. Um, and then, you know, of course, if you see a mermaid, which you've seen up here, where they're depicted in 3D with like prominent breasts and spreading their tails, like, doesn't take a scientist to see that like, okay, this, they're trying to do something here. So I think it's the the feminine side, that the nude female early on is just as important, if not more important, than the fishtail. They couldn't just paint naked women full, but if you made it a hybrid, it's different then. Another word for dangerous, depending on how you're looking at it, might be enticing, certainly yes. for us human beings. That goes on both sides. We're going to talk a little bit more about that, but before we do, we're going to give the audience a brief break. We'll bring Miles back on for uh, another song or two, and then we will pick right back up the conversation. This is the Matt Asher Radio Show, and you are listening to the sounds of Miles Mancuso. We're going to get right back now to my conversation with Vaughn Scribner, recorded live at the Key West Theater. It's a, a dangerous thing to present something as dangerous, because when you present something as dangerous, that makes it a taboo, and the taboo is always enticing. Certainly, that idea of the mermaid as enticing is something that we see throughout the culture as we transition in terms of the history of mermaids from the mermaid as a does it exist, does it not exist, to a fixture of the culture. What comes to the front there is the enticing, and we see splash there, the enticing, the alluring nature of the mermaid. So maybe you could jump in there and talk about that. And actually, even before that, I think that we have gone a long way without talking about tritons, yes. which are the male versions. So actually, I think we should 
back up a little bit and maybe you could say something about the uh, forgotten half of the Mer tribe yeah. in history. Well, the interesting thing, so you see them a lot, Tritons especially on these maps in the 15th and 16th century. They really start to spring up there. In the Western world, they're starting to you know, map the world, which has all of its own problems. But oftentimes in these maps of the world, the farther one got from either Western Europe or like Jerusalem, the center of Christianity, all these strange creatures appeared on the, on the map. And mermaids and mermen, especially Triton, were fundamental in this. Now, these Tritons, though, oftentimes were not depicted with like mer-tails. They were riding seahorses and things, and they had mermaids with them. So they were almost kind of like lording over the mermaids, if you will. So you definitely have this kind of like paternal idea of um, masculinity coming in at the time. Uh, but th they're still pretty few and far between. The only time you really see a lot of mermen in the 16th through the 18th centuries is when they're, when they're claiming to find them. And so um, uh, it's up there later, but this Codex Canadicis piece, this uh, male priest in Canada claimed to have found a merman up there, and he drew him as a, as a man. Um, so the only time you really see mermen from like the 14th through the 18th century is largely either as tritons mm -hmm. uh, depicted with these beards and you guys can think of think like triton from the little mermaid movie that's basically how they looked um or as these male creatures that they've captured and then drawn or seen and drawn so they're still pretty i mean mermen until just recently have been pretty on the fringes if you think about i don't know if you guys have heard of the wiki watchy um theater in florida it's a lot yeah Men who perform there still don't, they don't get to wear tails like the mermaids do until at least last time I checked. I don't know. I'm, but um, so they're still kind of, they're coming back in. But until just recently, tritons and mermen have been pretty kind of marginalized, if you will, in the mermaid community. I was, I was talking to Christy to this idea that like for the longest time they weren't too interested in it as much. And I don't know where that, we, there's a lot we can go into there. Um, but yeah, mermen have been, they, they are not as prominent as mermaids. I, I think that the, my own theory about this, um, as someone who has not written a book about uh, mer people or examined it deeply, is that the mermaid thing works for both women and men, mm -hmm. and the mermaid thing doesn't, in that the, to get back to the idea of dangerous and alluring, that's an idea that works both for men and totally. for women themselves, especially in the sense that women want to be desired and desirable mm -hmm. often, and the the fantasy of the mermaid plays into both of those things. Totally. And men tend to like the exotic and dangerous, and then maybe that gets us back to the place that it has in the culture and the appeal, the enduring appeal that it has as a fantasy. Yeah, but men want to be desired and desirable too. Do they? I think so. I, I think they want to have power. Yeah. Oh, we, we got yeah, a yes I, out there. Yeah. <laughs> I think they want to be desired, but more than that, I think they want oh, like status and establish power. Establish some power. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it goes deep in this like Western idea of masculinity and I think that's changing too. I mean, I think that I especially see this among my students now that an 18-year-old young man now is much more 
open and you know like gender fluid and things than when I was an 18 year old in 2004. This idea of kind of like masculinity and what it means to be a man is definitely shifting. And I well, think we, we are now living in the matriarchal era, That's right? Interesting. Yeah. Absolutely, right? Hell I yeah. mean, you can see it, the ascendancy of the yeah. mer person, the mermaid yeah. is, is testimony good. to that, no? Yeah. No. Um, and so that affects men as well. I would even argue that push that even a little farther. We're living in a new generation too where gender doesn't matter as much anymore. Our you think so? Of, I think hmm. our ideas of gender are becoming more fluid. <laughs> I see it among my students. I mean, I, I, I have my kind of finger on the pulse here in some ways. and I'm, I've really been impressed with how much more open they are. And I think this goes back to like back with mermaids, this idea of embracing kind of this like hybrid identity or this non kind of this more fluid identity. I think that's a reason this kind of mermaid movement as we were talking about is coming around more is like embracing like who you are and who you want to be. Here on the Matt Asher radio show, that's Miles Mancuso playing music, and we're going to go right back to the recording of our live show at the Key West Theater with Fawn Scribner. Thinking about the culture, um, and we uh, we seem to have lost the images, but before we lost them, oh, no. one of them that came up was the uh, the splash mm-hmm. uh, with Daryl Hannah. So let's talk about that movie yeah. for a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, Daryl Hannah, she's hot, right? Yeah. There you go. Look. Yeah. There she is, right? That was a huge hit. Yes. Why well, was I mean, it a huge hit? Sex. Sex sells. So this is interesting. So we, talk, we start off with mermaids as these ideas of like, be careful, be wary of the feminine, female form and sex. Well, by the 19th century... Advertisers use this and they're like, yeah, screw that. We're going to use this. And so you see these really explicit advertisements coming out. That's not it. But uh, <laughs> so you'll see them eventually. Very, I mean, you have like advertisements for like Van Heusen shirts where you have a topless woman in it. And for the 50s, that's, I mean, even today, if, I mean, I guarantee if there was a topless woman in an advertisement in America for a men's dress shirt, they like they would be it would be trending on Twitter for sure, um, but you had that you have all these really risque even according to our current notions of like kind of you know the body and sex advertisements coming out, um, and so these advertisers kind of turn what the church started against them and they say no no we're going to use this sex and we're going to use it to sell, so there's this movie that comes out there it is oh yeah there's the, so like Mr Peabody and the Mermaid there, it comes out. And it's 
this guy named Mr. Peabody, it comes out in the 40s or 50s, um, he traps this mermaid in a pool in his, in his hotel. Uh, and he goes and visits her. He goes, yeah, he's, he goes and visits her when he wants to, but she can't speak. And he likes that. And he has these creepy stuff, this creepy stuff he says to her. And even reviewers at the time in the 50s were like, eh, that's kind of creepy. But you see how the women are depicted in all these advertisements and these movie posters as these kind of objects of sexual lust. Definitely in Splash there's something to that. And so they, they turn it to use, they, they hyper-sexualize mermaids in the 40s through modern day. Um, even, you know, Ariel in the movie The Little Mermaid, the animated movie, she's she, you know, the way she's depicted, yeah, they're not pulling any punches. Um, and, yeah. and young, yeah. And that's a children's movie. I mean, you know, the, the movie Little Mermaid, on the poster there was a penis that they had to take off. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that goes in with the Little Mermaid movie. Um, and it's a very sexual film. Um, and it all goes back to this idea. And that, so that's from the 1920s. That's a London advertisement for Schweppes table waters that would be on these Eagle steamers going up and down the ri River Thames. And like, she's topless. And so that's, for the 20s, you wouldn't expect to see something like that. But somehow, if it's a mermaid, that almost makes it okay. Because she's not fully human. I don't know. People are expecting certain things. Um, and you have this fine art going around the late uh, 19th, early 20th century, exhibited in some of the finest galleries in the Western world of topless mermaids. So mermaids, I mean, yeah, this is, you know, the uh, tuna of the sea. She's more... So she's more just clothed. generally, if you look at this from a step back, what it looks like to me is that both men and women have a dualism in the opposite sex that they seem yes. to like. Yes. So for guys, they like the exotic and dangerous, mm -hmm. but also paired with the compliant and mm -hmm. submissive. The reverse is totally. also true. Yes. Uh, women tend to like the, you know, the bad boy combined mm -hmm. with the, you know, the house husband. Of course, you had they that, want it both ways. All yeah, those movies does. in the 80s about like kindergarten cop type men, men yes. who were hyper-masculine, but who Mr. Been, Mom. Mr. Yes, Mr. domesticated, yep. right? Um, and the mermaid, in, in some sense, seems to represent that duality. Totally. She's, she plays into everything for everyone in some ways. You know, even like, I was telling Matt this, you could even depict, you could even interpret the original story or the movie Little Mermaid as a horror film, yeah. which I kind of like to think about. Like, she gives up her voice and she transforms herself in this horribly painful process to become a human and like lose her, become, grow legs. Um, there's this evil sea witch. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot there. There's a, if you kind of go deeper. But, but, yeah, it's like this whole duality that we're really getting. And you see that in Mr. Peabody Mermaid, this movie Miranda. She, she comes on the shore and she seduces all these men as a mermaid. She, she, they wheel her around in a wheelchair and cover up her fins. Mm -hmm. um, but she eventually escapes back to the ocean. And the last time you see her, she, she's burying the child of a man with her out there so mm -hmm. they've had relations and now she like takes his child away from him so so perhaps maybe only controversial in the academic it's more halls. fun to overthink it yeah um or on twitter <laughs> uh when it came out a lot of uh feminist and gender scholars really attacked it um they attacked the way ariel's represented 
the Ursula is based off um, a drag of pretty famous. Divine, no? Yeah, yes, divine, exactly. Mm -hmm. But they presented her, they didn't celebrate the fact that she was a drag queen. Rather, they, people argued they kind of made her as this evil other. She literally gets killed in some ways by like a giant penis. It's and a, and I have a to broken say. broken off ship's mast that penetrates her and stabs her and kills her. Not not um, cool here where we have the... Uh, phallic symbol, the, yeah. The mafia. The... It's, yeah, not a penis, literally, but a phallic symbol. It's more <laughs> fun to look too far into this, guys. Um, but, <laughs> look, I went to see Little Mermaid when it came out. I had a Little Mermaid button on my jean jacket when I was five. Like, love Little Mermaid. But it's interesting to kind of analyze this, and I will tell you that, like, feminist scholars and gender scholars really took it to task when it came out. So. so where does that leave us right now in terms of the culture and mermaids? What what place does it play in the culture at the moment? Positive. Mm -hmm. And so eco and you know, eco movement, environmentalism movement, LGBTQ plus uh, movement, um, yeah, tourism. Uh, so many people have been have swimming, swimming lessons. So many people have embraced it now in different cultures and different peoples throughout the world as this more unifying movement. They're not, people aren't overthinking it as much. Rather, they're, they're really, I think, leaning into the, the wonder it evokes, the connection with place, um, the connection with each other. They're creating communities around it. And that's what I really love is that we're talking about this movement that's been going on. I didn't get into mermaids and the history of the mermaids to try to get in this movement necessarily but as i've done it i've met so many interesting people and really gotten into this culture and it really is the for me it's been kind of the gift that keeps giving and that you have these mermaid festivals everywhere from here the key west to coney island um and it brings people together and i think that that's the most important thing is it, it beyond just overthinking or you know thinking about what i've been talking about today but just like coming together and celebrating where you're from, where you want to be, who you want to be, I think there's really something to that. And I think that that's what it really brings out in us. I think it brings out the goodness. You know, going back to this idea of people of human history, we're in this stage or this phase right now where I would argue it started with like Christianity and like decentering the feminine, then going into kind of this age of exploration, then going into this scientific era, and then going in like hucksters and the hoax with Barnum then going to capitalism, consumerism, and film. I think we're in this new era now where people are using this image of the mermaid for good and for community and to, to present oneself and to be who you really want to be. And I like that. And I think I, in that, I would argue, we're in the best age of the mermaid right now. Yeah. So in just a moment, we'll move to the Q&A. Just before we do that, I'm wondering, I can't have you up here without okay. having you read a little bit. I'm wondering if you could yeah. read a, a paragraph from your book and then comment on it before we go to the Q&A. This is one of these fun things with writing something. I Half the time I forgot I even wrote it. And I'm like, oh yeah, I wrote that. I don't know, it's weird. Um, so this is a quote from the book. Um, Humans in instinctively recycle, interpret, and modify new ideas according to culturally constructed perceptions, biases, and worldviews. Merpeople are keen reflections of these shared global impulses. These creatures' hybrid nature invites personal introspection. They are at once fami familiar and foreign, human and monster. This very liminality seems to encourage homogeneity more than disparity, 
as various cultures continuously absorb and assimilate these strange creatures. Although this book is concentrated on Western interpretations of merpeople, a survey of these hybrids' global transmission drives home just how much merpeople provide a unifying lens through which to better understand the human condition. So, okay, so what the hell are you saying? I don't know. Um, no, I'm saying that humans, we take in all these cultural impulses and these ideas around us, and we kind of reinterpret and recycle them for what we want them to be. And we do this all the time. We're, we're constantly recycling ideas in our everyday lives, I would argue. But so merpeople, you know, they're, they're these global creatures, but we take them in and we recycle them and we interpret them and we modify them according to what we want them to be, according to our perceptions, our biases. And so I think we do this all the time with whoever we meet, who we want to be. One of my favorite ideas is someone told me this recently. He's like, everyone you meet knows a different version of you, a different you. There is no real you. You have this idea of who you are, but everyone who meets you, they have their own biases and their ideas and they, they kind of like filter you through this lens. And I think that that's like what mer people are is like who we are and where we are. We look at mer people and we project that onto them. And so that's why this is called mer people human history is because like the mirror they hold, these mer people traditionally, they're reflections of us. We're more like them than maybe we want to admit. So mer people are productions of us according to our time and place. So that's what I would argue. Well put. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. As a note for the radio and podcast listeners, we ended the live show with an uncensored Q&A. If you missed it, you definitely missed out and will want to catch the next live show we do. We will be back next week with a regular show.